Today on Octal FM, Jalal and I start a new recurring segment discussing the most important, influential and generally interesting games of each year, beginning with the gaming milestone of 1985. Hello and welcome to an episode of Octal FM. I am Sefran. And I'm Gelada. And you join us today on a bit of a trip into history. We're going in the way, way back machine. Mm. And we took some inspiration from when we were doing our episode 100 retrospective chats. And also when we were going through some of our old episode topics. And we're going to decide to start a new recurring segment. Yeah, uh, we were influenced. I mean, it is, but... I think it's going to be a fun one because mm-hmm. I think it forces us to talk about things that we wouldn't necessarily ever really talk about. And mm. I think there's a lot of interesting history and importance to the culture of gaming here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is we're going to discuss a year in gaming. And we're going to start back as far back as today's episode, which is 1985, which mm. is not the first year in gaming by all means, definitely not. But we feel this is probably the... The, the year in which modern gaming as we know it probably kind of came to be, right? Yeah, it was quite a turning point, I think, 1985, wasn't it, for, for gaming? And unfortunately, it does mean that we miss out on some really key games. Like, I think, did Tetris come out the year before this, I mm-hmm. think? And so did Elite. <laughs> which, yeah, as Hack who knows as well. Us, um, Hack, yeah. Was 1984. Um, yeah, but 1985 is interesting because in the years prior the video game industry entered a big recession, Mm. especially in the US. There were so many home consoles that you could pick from. Like there was this massive, massive fragmentation of different home consoles. And they all Uh, essentially sold the same jank. Yeah, exactly. And it was also where the PC, as we know it, like the IBM PC, Mm. was beginning to kind of come on the rise. So you've got this kind of rise of the PC... Um, loads and loads of other platforms to choose from um, and loads of games all over the place and sort of you know games have been very home console games have been very popular and it, you know in 1983 the video game industry was the, the revenue was like over three billion dollars but in 1985 it was down to just a hundred million dollars mm. which is like crazy I think at the time people probably thought I wasn't alive but um, I think people probably thought that like video games were over yeah, you know, it's, it's like, that is over like that's actually thing. the end um, yeah. because that is such a that's a 97% drop, right? That's, yeah. that's just so colossal. Um, arcades were still doing OK at the time. Yeah, that, that, I think that's the big difference, isn't it? Because mm. many of these home consoles were trying to emulate the games within the arcade, but without them being the size of a cabinet and, the, you know, several thousand dollars back in 1985 to make them, it wasn't possible to create that same look and aesthetic mm. and feel. Right. So a lot of these games just felt like super basic watered-down versions. And I think initially the, the, the novelty of having this in your house, on your television was probably what drove a lot of people to buy these get home consoles as opposed to like you say mm. things like the PC, the Apple Mac, the Commodore 64, those sorts of things, right? And it was wearing a bit thin. The the novelty was starting to wear thin. Mm. Definitely, definitely. But despite that, 
Um, we actually saw a lot of really interesting games in 1985. I, th- I guess maybe, you know, necessity kind of drives it a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, I think, like, we can sort of get the really obvious one out of the way and then talk about some of the more, some of the more curious, curious games from 1985. Mm-hmm. The obvious one is Super Mario Brothers, right? Yeah. Which came out in 1985. It sort of invented kind of emergent game design you know it that that has that classic the classic anecdote that i think everyone probably knows about super mario brothers on the nes which is that you know the start of the level there's no tutorial but the start of the level basically builds you up from zero so you learn that you can't go left and you have to go right because it doesn't let you go left there's like you work out how to jump and that but then there's things in the way of you jumping and it kind of designs you to jump into the first goomba because yeah. of the way that the blocks are designed so that you die so that you learn that okay those things hurt you and you need to jump on top of them uh and then also you get a, a mushroom pretty early on and you learn that you that like you can collect those yeah and you, you also you can hit blocks and get mushrooms and they yeah. do things when you get hit when you get the mushroom you'll go smaller and, and you can't miss the mushroom as well because there's a pipe so the mushroom runs off but then comes back yeah uh so it's basically impossible to miss it uh which you know forces it to kind of teach you that without ever actually telling you any of these things there's no text pausing of the game to tell you to press a to jump on a goomba when it's there you know in the sort of classic more modern style of of gaming before Um, this as well one way which games would often teach their players how to play was that you just literally have an instruction manual right yeah obviously we think of instruction manuals a bit of a thing of gaming's past now unfortunately because sometimes they were really lovely but rather than it being a manual about what the game is and some of the aspects of the game it really was exactly what it sounds like an instruction manual yeah how to play the game like you get some of these older games on the things like the like the ColecoVision, the Intellivision, the Atari, and you if you didn't have this instruction, you man, you playing the game was next to impossible without just an insane amount of trial and error. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes especially, even then, it's not possible without yeah, context. Exactly, especially in the days you know you've got no internet or anything to like look stuff up. Mm. Um, you know, and yeah, that's actually a problem sometimes if you want to replay these games. Uh, you know, there's uh, a bunch of these Super Mario Brothers, obviously, you can easily replay. But, you know, some of the other games that we're going to talk about, if you didn't, if you don't have the manual, it can be difficult to understand what to do. Mm. And not all uh, ways of replaying these games necessarily give you the manuals. I remember, was it on the Wii, I think, where like the virtual console on the Wii would always, it always had the manual for the game yeah. that you were playing, which was really, really good. And actually, even like the stuff on the Switch, for example, doesn't have like the NES and, and SNES, uh, like virtual console thing on there doesn't have the game manuals. No, it doesn't. The um, cool, little, cool little aside with that one as well, actually, because um, you've mentioned it, is the game Star Tropics. Did you mm. ever play Star Tropics? No. Star Tropics was a game developed in Japan, but only released in America, right? Which mm-hmm. is already super weird. Bear yeah. in mind, this is in like 1980 something, like 1989, uh, on the NES. And to be able to play the game you had to have the instruction manual because like there was a code in the in the manual you needed to progress in the game oh yeah yeah right so in the wii version yeah you could just go into the manual and there it was but the switch version (laughs) on the switch's nes like virtual library whatever doesn't have the manual so unless you know that you need to go and look in the manual you have no way of progressing in this like 30 year old game (laughs) oh my god um but this just goes to show how important manuals were back then but mario didn't need it 
necessarily no, like it was there and you could be taught you know you press a to jump and you hold b to run but like the game design was so different to the, to the rest of the games surrounding it in its day because it was designed to teach the player how to play and you played for play's sake whereas oftentimes many of these games you were playing for a sake of like score oftentimes mm, right. there wasn't really like a mario has a sort of story i guess but you, you don't play for the story and you don't play for the points you play to beat the level yeah exactly and super mario brothers there's this double sort of combo in that it also was with the nes you know and the, and the fact that the nes was was being launched at that point you know i think it must have been i don't have any like knowledge or, or information to, at my fingers but it must have been quite an interesting time to be releasing the nes straight after the video game crash mm. um you know that's that's definitely quite a brave move um but it worked right it paid off um and and yeah super mario brothers was you know definitely helped save the video game industry i think uh, i think i think one of the issues of it and we can definitely go into this maybe in a a spin-off episode of this just delving into the history of the nas was that in japan it wasn't a games console necessarily exclusively like it was the the famicom the family computer yeah so it wasn't necessarily trying to fill the sole niche of being a games console yeah but that's obviously what it became over its lifespan Uh, and as a result of it, maybe Nintendo was a little bit more confident in trying to sell this family computer to the West rather than just trying to launch another video game market. Yeah, exactly. But there were a lot of other games, as you know, that is the really obvious 1985 um, video game, Super Mario Brothers. But there's a lot of others that are actually, you know, really interesting to talk about, have sort of got a lot of influences, you know, or rather have influenced a lot of games now. One that I pulled out that I wanted to talk about was um, Gradius. Mm. Uh, Gradius is a like a horizontal shooter. Yeah, um, you're flying a little spaceship, uh, and it's interesting because there was a there was already a uh, sci-fi shooter. Like a shooter, sorry, um, called I think like Xevious, is yeah, it like Zevious, with an X? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. was actually vertical rather than horizontal. And the goal, like Gradius, when they set out designing and, and making Gradius, it was like that's the game to beat. Like yeah. it's like a direct kind of like response to this. Uh, and it was quite early on in the days of Konami making video games. Yeah. So they sort of they it was like 1983 when I think they started making video games ish. And Gradius was in development for about a year. So, you know, from the point of view of of, of where it sits in the history, it's like really, really early on. And before that, yeah. they made like like arcade, like yeah. coin machines, right? Yeah, like, they're like, you know, entertainment machines, things yeah. like arcade machines that weren't necessarily video games. Uh, it's also where they got their roots in Pachinko as well. Right, exactly, exactly. And yeah, I think, I think Gradius stands up really well, actually, unlike some of the other games that we're going to talk about in that, the mechanics are quite interesting. I always find what's really interesting about Gradius is the the power-up mechanic, right? And the fact that you can either kind of like bank them to get the better ones or you can use them early on. Yeah. So you can sort of, you almost customize your ship through the power-ups as you're playing the game. It was obviously fantastically hard, um, as, as is to be expected. Mm. Um, but also just like, just a really fun one. And, and you know, so many... There were already, you know, vertical shooters and horizontal shooters at the time, but I think a lot of things could really draw inspiration even now 
oh from, sure from gradius like, i mean one of the things that i think gradius did which, which going back to discussing xevious was it really gave that style of shooter game uh, a lot of character mm. because games like xevious which were also then similar to games like galaga yes who was also then quite similar to games uh, to games like uh, Missile Command. When you think about it, they're all shooting projectiles from one side of the screen to another side of the screen, right? Yeah. They're all very similar in, in, into each other's gameplay method, but Gradius added so much extra character. Like, it looked like you were actually flying a spaceship through, like, mm. these, like, corridors and mazes of, like, a space station or something, you know? Yeah. And it gave it a great sense of character, which I think is honestly one of the reasons why it did so well, other than the fact that it was just a really, it was a joy to control as well. Like mm. it, it controlled so smoothly and nicely and yeah, it just felt really nice to play. Uh, yeah. And I think that that was why it set it aside from so many of the other shooters, which is also why there were just so many scrolling shooters from here on out. Yeah. Like, I mean, th- there were some particularly kind of big ones like R-Type, for example, that was another kind Ooh, of really yeah. popular one. But there were so many that just didn't quite capture the same magic that Gradius and its subsequent sequels mm. in the same series managed mm. to accomplish. Mm. You know, uh, I, I think you like you say you can still see some of its influences today. For example, like a power up system. You know, c- yeah. gathering a pa- you know items to to power up over time and let you choose what you you, you power up. You know, mm. that's doesn't seem like much now but i mean back in 1985 like and and to some extent early when they were developing the game Mm. the idea that the player could like customize how they power up that's pretty cool yeah definitely definitely uh i think also i would think like the style of gradius right that's sort of like quite lots of color kind of quite Mm. bright quite fantastical sort of sci-fi you can really see influences in you know and 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 sort of commonalities with things like metroid as well which we've been talking about recently on the show mm-hmm. um in the sense that it's sort of very kind of similar aesthetic i mean i don't want to spend too long talking about it. we have other things to talk about too but and this is actually going to come up in some of the other games in this list but they used the limited graphical capabilities as well as they possibly could rather than trying to create like a realistic looking spaceship mm, they made it right. c- kind of cartoony looking a little bit like spritey looking kind of silly looking but it made it very distinguishable as what it was supposed to be and it made it pop as well yeah whereas especially on pc i found more often you often try to find them trying to be kind of realistic looking and they just look blocky as a result they didn't like look like anything otherwise so yeah that's definitely another aspect to gradius's like visual design which communicated like what you were and where you were and how you were moving and stuff Mm, yeah exactly Another one that came from another Japanese video game giant of the industry of the time was Ghosts and Goblins by Mm. Capcom. Uh, Now this one, this one has less of a legacy than I think any game on the list. Like, although it's had sequels over the years, I don't think think this is the one that's done the the best in terms of its longevity than than Mm. the rest of them. But its design can't be understated because it it took that arcade-style difficult gameplay and did a really epic job of putting it onto the home console. Because before then, oftentimes, these arcade ports would just be really simple dumbed down versions of the arcade games themselves mm. like later on we'll in like future episodes of this series we'll talk about things like maybe double dragon for example and you can see that there like you can see how awful it is by comparison on the the, 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 the nes on the home console right mm. but ghosts and goblins managed to really do almost a one-for-one transition in terms of feel may not look quite the same but the gameplay was just spot on 
Mm. Yeah, because it was originally an arcade game, right? Ghosts mm-hmm. and Goblins. And it's definitely got the, in my mind, I, you know, if I think about like games that are absolutely terrifyingly tough and really, really hard, but also at the same time, just make you think, I can just I can see myself getting better. I just need to keep playing and keep trying, and it's like really really frustrating. And it's, that's definitely Ghosts and Goblins. Like I always think of think of it when I think of the that like nightmare style difficulty. Mm. Um, you know, I didn't realize this until I was reading about it because I've never I, I've not it's not a game I have completed. Mm. Um, but like you have to play the game through twice, right? You yes, get to the end, yeah. you defeat every you defeat you know you you win the game, and then you've got to do it again, do it all over again, <laughs> and it's slightly harder this time as well. Yeah, like the, it was basically just like a psych carry on playing and in the arcade that would have been psych put more money in yeah yeah <laughs> um but in the home consoles you didn't have that issue but this was also during the days of things like the konami code for example of, of for contra which i'm sure we'll probably talk about in future episodes where you did have limited lives and it really did mean limited lives like once you were dead you were dead and you had to start again from the beginning so this is kind of where the idea of the arcade hard get good mentality kind of in gaming kind of started mm, almost mm. like obviously there were many difficult games and there were, there will be subsequent difficult games from this but this is certainly one of them which is like very unrelenting it, it it's like no you're going to be good or you're not going to play sort of mm, thing mm. um maybe sometimes that's too hard and i think nowadays though, i think that would fly because things like dark souls for example try and emulate that style of difficulty but giving you you're always getting a little bit better right because you're every time you you kill something you get the souls and you can upgrade yourself slightly better you know very very look roguelite you know mm, what we see nowadays mm. in a lot of roguelite games but ghosts and goblins was like nope you failed start again end of yeah like I, I don't think that would carry over anymore but you can see why many games try to copy that style of taking the arcade difficulty into the home console space because Unlike in, say, something like Super Mario, where I think they were quite progressive with the way they were thinking about game design and making a game to be fun in the home, I think Ghosts and Goblins just tried to copy, and very successfully, the appeal of arcade games at home. Yeah, absolutely. One game that really fascinated me from 1985 when I was doing doing some research for this episode was Ultima 4. Ooh. If you look up some screenshots of Ultima 4, you're probably familiar with the, the name Ultima, right? It's like a it's like a well long standing yeah. sort of kind of quirky in my like my view of it is that it's a kind of weird franchise. I think quirky is a very generous term. Like uh, like I Ultima Online, and like, yeah, just like very odd, very like you know you can see the vision of it's like. It's like Madagascar, but RPGs, you know, like it's like developed its own, developed on its own path. It does feel bit. like it was made entirely independent of basically all other game yeah. design surrounding it, both past and present. It's very, very odd. Um, and it's and it's aged really badly as well. If, yeah. you, if you look at if you look at this and, and sort of I think you can you can play it, but you probably you're going to have you've got a lot to get over first. Uh, it's originally on the Apple II, actually, but mm-hmm. it was also on like the Master System and stuff like that. And what I was really interested in is like Ultima 1 to 3 were sort of traditional RPG kind of stories. And Ultima 4, there's actually not, you're not like a hero and there's not a bad guy. It's just you are like seeking enlightenment, essentially, Mm. like as a character. 
So there's sort of a lot. It really, really focuses on morality and, yes, yeah, and the yeah. depth of sort of like the decisions you make sort of uh, affects your ability to win the game, essentially, because your goal is to your goal is to actually be good. So you can't be you can't really be bad. Um, and if you make bad decisions, you you'll regret it. <laughs> but I think the key thing there is that you can make those decisions. Yeah. You aren't forced into it. Whereas in many kind of like RPG games at the time, be them Eastern or Western developed, oftentimes you had no choice in the matter. There was a lot a lot right. of agency. But even though you, you did need to be a good person, you still had agency in how you approached that task in Ultima. Mm. Yeah. And I think yeah, it's just really interesting, like some interesting depth around, you know, combat not really being the primary focus, although there is a lot of combat. And yeah, it was kind of, it's interesting as well, because it was around the time when, in America especially, and it is a Western game, like there was a lot of, there was this kind of like weird uprising against Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Like this sort of like weird period where people thought it was some kind of weird culty thing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was attacked by like Christian groups of being yeah. very Satanistic and, and right. very occult. And so, so Ultima 4, like, I think from what it, from sort of doing some research and reading about it, it was kind of like a bit of a response to that mm. in that it's like, well, look, here's this like evil thing that these evil like role playing games, but it's like effectively teaching like Christian Morality, ideologies yeah. right? and like like doing good in inverted commas, even though it's like an evil RPGs being bad kind of thing. So, yeah, I've, I found that very interesting, like really sort of you almost start to see that idea of kind of video games, you know, having depth, uh, making people ask questions, right, about things larger than just video games in the same way that like a, you know, an interesting sort of thought provoking film does or a, or a book or something. This to me is sort of like a meeting point between actual RPG gameplay. And I'm thinking maybe like RPGs like Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy, mm, mm. but meets an actual interactive storyline of things right. like the pointing look adventure games that were made in mm. the West at the time. Because yeah, and also things like, like interactive fiction as well, right? Yes, kind of exactly. Thing. Yeah. Where you have a little bit more agency about what you do and how you do it. And it's a little bit more in-depth than was capable on some of the home systems. This is why, you know, they're often on computers. Yeah. And this very much meant the middle. And I feel this sort of like paved the way for those sort of games, like games like the Elder Scrolls games and the Fallout mm, games right. can, kind of yeah. can really feel the legacy of the Ultima games. So in this case, Ultima 4 in them, you know, where you've got this morality system, you've got this open world nature, which yeah, like yeah, it, you can do what you want when you want it. Yeah, Ultima it's completely, can, uh, it's completely open world. Yeah. yeah. Like you can choose the way in which you do things, which is pretty crazy when you think about like creating a world in a video game in 1985 where you right. the player can kind of do what they want in any order that's kind of weird yeah and there um, are like loads think- of characters loads of locations like like relatively speaking especially for the time it's 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 chunky <laughs> so i would say I, I agree utterly that this is definitely aged the worst of any game on this list <laughs> um and i think to play it would probably be pretty bad but its legacy is quite important. Mm, and definitely. I think this very much melds the two styles of gameplay of the the East being very gameplay focused. You know, we've talked about three Japanese developed games already. Mm. And then the more story elements of the Western games, which were very popular in like the UK and in Europe and America at the time. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It is it is really interesting. Like and you still see some of that today, obviously, and, and all the way through, this is probably going to be a bit of a recurring theme, especially in these early years as, as we work our way up 
through them. But yeah, Ultima Four. I was very interested to to learn about it. I watched a bit of a let's play on YouTube, and mm. I was like, wow, I'm never going to try and play this game. <laughs> this is definitely one of those games where you need a D and D size book to your left yeah. of you as you're playing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's know. like yeah, you need to make notes and you need to like rem- write everything down. You need the manual. Um, I think there's a. I think it came with a history of the Ultima, like of from did. one, two, and three, as like a did. book, and you needed to read it. Or you needed to know because otherwise you wouldn't be able to, like, you wouldn't know what's going on. I think um, one of the things that I don't want to spend too long on Ultima, but it is fascinating, is how even in 1985, there still wasn't necessarily that much distinction between a video game and just an extension of a game, if that makes mm, sense. Like, right. you could almost see this as an extension of still playing Dungeons and Dragons, like right. on the tabletop with dice and pens and paper and stuff like that, you know. Mm, mm. So this is still not quite broken into its own genre of of Mm. entertainment quite yet Mm. and it's still trying to ape that same appeal that the Mm. traditional rpg the tabletop rpg has Mm -hmm. so i think i think ultima is such a wonderfully interesting piece of history which has its influences a long way back but also you can feel its influence a long way forward as well yeah definitely the the final game that's I popped on this list, which I just think is interesting because it just looks crazy. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really of, ambitious game. Yeah, really, really ambitious. Like, like of all the games that we've talked about, especially Ultima Four, which looks terrible. But when you look at <laughs> you look at Space Harrier, yeah, Space Harrier is a. It's not side scrolling, is it? It's like a three D. It's very weird. Yeah. It's a three D shooter where you're like moving forwards in three D. The game I can think about comparing it to most during the similar sort of time period is 3D World Runner. Right. Where you are moving into mm. the screen. You know, not up the screen, but yeah. kind of like towards into, yeah. and into the screen. Also things like, obviously, later Star Fox. Um, yeah, and yeah. Outrun, that sort of like racing game style graphics. Um, I think sort of it did similar. Hang On come out in 1986, the, the biking game. Oh, I think not it sure. did. Yeah. That, again, very similar to things like Outrun, for example, yeah, yeah. like um, those sort of like foregoing racing games, like right. Sega Rallies later on. But I mean, I'm sure there were games like it beforehand. But Space Harrier feels like it was pretty influential in the, yeah. in designing that style of gameplay of like uh, of tricking you into thinking it was 3D. Right. It was one of the first games, I think, if not the first, to have sort of sprite scaling to to mm. do a 3d effect so basically having all of everything is sprites because of course it's 1985 um yeah but they would scale them dynamically and grow grow and shrink them to give the effect of of depth and perspective and then yeah, sort things of, coming towards you yeah you had very very rudimentary not even really collision detection like that wasn't really a thing at this point because you've got no 3d space to collide so very rudimentary sort of understandings of you know if sprites overlap or whatever to sort of try and give you an idea of of you hitting things or shooting things in certain ways and yeah like it was it was exceedingly ambitious i think uh when i was reading about this it's called space harrier because they actually wanted it to be a harrier jet like Mm. a and and they couldn't 
they couldn't have enough animation frames of a of a jet, <laughs> of a jet so it turned into like a person because they only needed like a couple of frames to animate yeah. a person it's like, like a dude a flying on a jetpack kind of yeah floating around um, versus a aircraft that would have to like pitch up and down and, ro- yeah, and roll yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that um, and they tried similar things to that on other consoles like maybe a year or two later with things like the top gun game i don't know if you mm. saw if you've seen that but mm. they try it on that and it doesn't work as well yeah like space yeah, harrier yeah, yeah. is really fluid considering how old it is like it's actually quite fun to play even today you know yeah. like it, it it's so smooth you know and, and mm. buttery to control weirdly enough like for a game that's this old you yeah. expect it to be kind of clunky especially for its weird like style of movement that you would go mm. forward and and you know all around the screen but yeah it, it feels great to control yeah it was one of the first to support an analog control stick as well like which in is crazy um and it ran at 60 fps in arcades that's like, even crazy it was, like this you know amazing kind of 3d um sort of pseudo 3d sprite scaling they did a lot they had to do a lot of weird stuff i'm sure um to get that to to work um i also found it really interesting when i, I read about it um, the art, like the art style is, is weird, right? It's like a very kind of fantastical sort of sci-fi fantasy crossover, yeah. you know, lots of kind of weird, weird enemies, not spaceships. <laughs> this was, um, this is very much before your, it didn't have a sci-fi vibe of something like Star Wars, which was sort of like, no, kind of modern sci-fi with like a little bit of like fantastical yeah. magic in terms to it. But it also didn't have that gritty, like Battlestar Galactica look to it. It had this like very flash gordon very camp sort of like almost like prog rock psychedelic look to it right and actually the art was inspired by a guy called roger dean and roger dean painted the front covers of the the prog rock band yes yeah Um, you can tell (laughs) like like he did these he used to do these weird kind of like and a a lot of prog rock as well like things like genesis and stuff like weird sort of like you know loads of fluid lines lots of colors you know Mm. sort of like pinks and greens and you know pastely very bright kind of pastel colors uh and yeah that that was apparently their inspiration uh, and you can really see it. Like, you can. Now yeah. that I re- when I read that, I was like, yeah, yeah, I can absolutely. It's a prog rock game. <laughs> Which, I mean, if you think of games from, just look at the other four games on this list, right? They all look grey, but they're all a little bit, a little bit pale Brown. in colour. Right? <laughs> Brown is not a bad word for it. Yeah. But Space Harrier really pops, right? Yeah. It looks so good. Like, it looks so bright and vibrant and colourful. And, and also, apparently... Um, like, because the sky in it is like pink or something. Like, it's yes, like a, yeah, like yeah, a bright yeah. color. Apparently, that was an accident. And oh, they really? had like a, it was like, there was like a bug to do with resetting the, the memory and it would scramble all of the colors, but the game would still play. Oh, wow. And they did it and they were like, that color is amazing. And they yeah, like extra- <laughs> pulled the color out of this, of the like, you know messed up code or messed up run of the game and then used it permanently in the game that's brilliant <laughs> i love that because i i have such a wonderful experience with 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 space harry because i used to play it on my game gear oh yeah right? oh, the man. sega game gear was it 60 right? fps on the game gear i doubt it um i doubt it was even double digits but uh no it was it was really good and everything you're saying exactly you know was translated into this game gear mm, version like mm. it was right bright and vibrant and colorful and crazy and yeah like the uh, obviously the game gear came a few years later than this but even still like i mean the the game is so weird and doesn't have as much influence on the future like like you mentioned it does influence things like star fox for example yeah, yeah. um like that sort of like 
on-rail shooter type going forward, which hasn't really been done too much, I don't feel mm. like. Like, no. it didn't become, like, a big staple in gaming. But it certainly influenced some aspects of the gameplay, especially, like, the analog control. That's really mm. important. Mm. Um, having a really wonderful, wacky design and being colourful and not being afraid to have, like, an interesting look to it, mm. you know? Yeah. So, yeah, like, I think... Although it's probably the least well-known game on our list, I think it's equally as important as any of them. Definitely. But yeah, that's our sort of select... Obviously, there's loads of games um, yeah. from, from 1985. These are not the only ones, but these are the ones that we sort of pulled out um, that are interesting. You can pretty much... All of them are very easy to play now, right? In various forms, whether it's emulators. Some of them are just... You can just play online in your browser yeah, um, yeah, pretty yeah. easily by just like hunting around. Archive.org has lots of um, sort of old games like these on. You know, the Space Harrier, for example, is on the Switch. Uh, and Super Mario Brothers, obviously, as well. And Gradius is on Switch as well, I think. Um, yeah. But yeah, very easy to play all of these. Not necessarily recommending that you do. Uh, some of them, like, they yeah, some of them are badly. better than others to play, yeah. It, I think it's worth sort of like just like playing even if it's just a few minutes of them yes um, to just to experience. sort of like be like oh cool like seeing them in motion you know and seeing the feel of them and because like we said about like space harrier for example and gradius you know they feel a, a very specific way and it's very arcade it's very sort of you know sort of purposeful it's quite different to to movements in games a lot of the time now especially with sort of lots of fluid animation and and you know sort of game assists as well mm. you know assisting you in terms of sort of latching on to making sure that you kind of follow a particular path to sort of help mm. you a bit you know these games were not doing that uh, and and it you feel it you know it's a very direct response kind of you know what you press is the output you it's get what you get yeah for sure I, I think what's really interesting about a lot of the games on this list is that they're also different to the the most seminal game of of super mario bros right mm, like yeah, yeah. mario very much encapsulates video gaming as we think of it today but yet all of these games are equally as important but they're completely different mm. but maybe you have a game from 1985 that you either played at the time if you're if you're one of our uh, more mature listeners not that we're not because we're <laughs> like, uh, acting like we're acting like we're not mature but 1985 a little bit just before our time yeah a little bit or you know something that you've just played you know since then uh that you that you you know think it was was worthy of us talking about uh, or you have any memories of any of these games mm. that we've talked about because we don't um or we have less especially not at the time mm. uh let us know give us a shout on our email uh show at octal.fm or on the twitters twitter.com forward slash octal fm uh, the best two ways getting in I'm touch sure with us we've we've forgot many favorite games like we, oh yeah we haven't really touched on any of the points and click adventure games mm, yeah. uh, like i know there were some fairly big ones back in the day at this time in this time so yeah like there's going to be people that have like played the absolute living crap out of some of these games and Definitely. we didn't even touch on them so we do apologize about that one uh, <laughs> but these are just the five games that we thought mm kind of had a, a long-lasting impact on the, on the gaming culture of today absolutely um and yeah and then we will we'll be doing 1986 pretty soon so mm -hmm. if you've got also if you've got any games that you think absolutely have to be on that list then let us know before we record it and in the meantime i've been gelada and i've been saffron and catch us again for another episode of octal fm very soon <laughs>